Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. I came to poetry via music, its musicality, the sound of language, also via live performance, storytelling, using pauses, punchlines, that kind of thing. And then also aesthetically, the way it looks on the page. In 1964, Potter Stewart, who was a Supreme Court justice, was asked to define obscenity for a trial he was presiding. He said that he couldn't define it exactly, but he continued with a famous quote, I know it when I see it. I have exactly the same feeling when asked what makes a good poem. I know it when I see it. I don't know what makes an iambic pentameter better or whether a sonnet is a more apt poem than a haiku, but when I read a poem that makes something inside me vibrate a little, maybe through its language or its rhythm or what it brings to my mind, then I know it when I see it. A few months back, I was lucky enough to go to Glastonbury Festival in Somerset in Western England. It was an amazing experience, not just for the music, but also for the atmosphere and the people that you meet. Everybody's super friendly and relaxed. One night at Glastonbury, I was in a queue for an event and I got chatting to the group in front of me. And it turns out that one of the girls in the group was a poet. We chatted a bit about poetry and she mentioned that she was about to publish her first collection of poems. Obviously, that piqued my interest, and when I asked her if she would be willing to recite a poem, she delivered a really authentic, amazing performance right there in the queue. This poet's name is Iona Lee. She's Scottish, and she generously shared with me a copy of her book, a collection of poems with the title Anamnesis, which is an ancient Greek word for recollection, especially a recollection of a previous life. It means an unforgetting. I'm not going to pretend that I'm a specialist of poetry. Again, I can't comment on the more academic aspects of the form, but I do enjoy reading it, and I like this collection a lot. For starters, I'm a sucker for anything that evokes memory and remembrance, but also I appreciate eclectic approaches to literature, and this collection is definitely that, eclectic. It weaves between classical and contemporary subjects, It's playful and creative in the structure of the poems, and above all, it feels really authentic, like this poet is putting her feelings, emotions, and perhaps memories out there, which is all that we ask of artists. I asked Iona if she would be a guest on the show today, and we had a really great discussion on how she gets inspired, her path as an artist, and what she recommends in the poetry world and her favorite books. So we met in this remarkably fun way at Glastonbury. And then I thought to myself, what were you doing at Glastonbury? Were you maybe performing there and giving uh, festival goers a sneak peek of your new book? Yes. No, I was there performing. I was taking part in the poetry and words stage. So 
Glastonbury have all these different sections, you know, there's like a cabaret bit and a circus bit, and there is a poetry bit. So I was part of the lineup for this year's Glastonbury poetry stage. Congratulations. Thank you. It was very nice to go back because I had done it before, but the last time I did it was six years ago. And the morning of my gig was the morning of the Brexit vote. Oh boy. Yeah, that's an yes. ominous uh, performance. Yeah. yeah, it took the wind out my sails a little. The crowd were a bit shell-shocked looking and it was sort of hard to get the tone right. Oh um, boy. So it was nice to go back and there weren't any major political events. <laughs> the, the coast was clear politically uh, and, yeah. and overall you had a good experience performing. How did you find the, the standard of fellow poets and, and performance at Glastonbury this year? Oh, I mean, the standard of performers is incredibly high, of course. It's a fun event to take part in. Aside from anything, just it sounds quite cool to be like, yeah, of I was course. performing at Glastonbury. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I sold quite a lot of books because at Polygon, my publishers gave me copies to sell ahead of its publication. And ah. yeah, it was good. It's never going to be the best gig of your life doing any festival gig because... It's during the day, it's poetry. A lot of people are in the tent because it shields them from the sun or the rain, and they're sort of wanting to nap off their hangover. But that's also quite a nice space to meet people in, I suppose. What would be the dream gig? I'm sure you'd get a very different answer depending on what poet you asked. I like the rowdier gigs, personally. I kind of came up through performing in music venues and pubs, and often for audiences who aren't necessarily there to see poetry. Mm -hmm. So my favorite gigs that I've ever done have always been the ones where I've won over a crowd. Oh, wow. Okay. You know? Yeah. So you you like a good challenge uh, to reel in a new demographic of poetry lovers. Yeah, sort of poetry is like ring mastery, you know? Like uh, having to kind of get people to sit down and shut up. And I think cutting my teeth in those spaces means that what I am good at as a performer is getting people to shut up and listen. I think poets who come up more in the sort of literary scene where everyone's very quiet and attentive, and perhaps if they were then thrown into a situation where it was an audience that weren't necessarily up for listening without being given a reason to, it might be quite sort of difficult and you'd feel quite sensitive and maybe a bit sad and a bit vulnerable. Yeah, I can't quite picture Louise Gluck performing in a rowdy pub for some reason. But. <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, your path to becoming a poet. How did you become a poet? Who were some of your inspirations on that path? And w- was there a specific moment of epiphany where you thought, I'm a poet, this is what I'm supposed to do? Well, I'd always enjoyed writing. When I was a child, it was more short stories. But the background I come from is I grew up in theater I wasn't a theater kid, like I wasn't in the drama program. My parents are both actors. So I literally grew up backstage in theaters, which meant that I had, you know, a privileged insight to the inner workings of a theater. I witnessed the way that, you know, these collaborative projects come to life and these worlds are constructed and then disappear. And so my first relationship to language was like spoken word in a theatrical context. And obviously so much of theater is poetry itself. But I was never interested in acting at all. The idea of pretending to be someone else on stage gives me the cringe. I can't handle the thought (laughs) of it. So I knew I liked writing, but I also knew I liked performing. And I was like, how do you write and get to be yourself, but still get to be the person saying your words, not having to give it to someone else? And then I think this is probably true of a lot of people of my generation. I was taken to a K Tempest gig when I was 16, I think. 
You're going to have to elaborate on on what okay. that is exactly. Kay Tempest is a brilliant poet, rapper, writer, performer, sage, prophet type from the UK. They're from London specifically, I think. Anyway, they're sort of one of the most celebrated live performers in the UK right now, I'd say. Uh, they perform with live music often. And so just seeing them perform, it was like, that was the epiphany. That was the ding kind of, oh, I didn't realize this could be a thing, you know. Then the way I got into it personally was I was 17. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I just Googled, I think, spoke of word nights in Edinburgh, where I live. It's the kind of thing, you know, when you're young, you're so maybe naive, but also so sure of yourself. And yeah, I can give that a go whenever. Well, because you, you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. Yes. There's a name for that, which I can't remember. Now. <laughs> yeah. So I just went to the first thing I saw on Google and it just so happened that the poet who was headlining that we open mic gig was a woman called Selena Godden, who is also an incredibly celebrated poet, kind of rock star, and to this day, very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And she sort of, I don't know, saw something in me, I guess, because she took me under her wing. And I think what she did more than anything was, because I think of her as a sort of mentor, but she hasn't ever really taught me how to write or how to make a poem, what she did was show me the life, I suppose. Give me insight into what it meant to be a writer. And presumably help to build your confidence that you were destined for this? Well, perhaps that's a nice way of putting (laughs) it. But, you know, showed me the good pubs and the good secret bars and introduced me to the cool people. And yeah, just was someone to look up to and someone to aspire to. So today we're going to talk a little bit about your first collection of poems, which has just come out, called Anamnesis. The title, for those who didn't study ancient Greek at school, uh, (laughs) means uh, recollection, especially of a previous existence, uh, and quote-unquote unforgetting. And by the way, may I just take the opportunity to say it's an excellent collection of poems. I really enjoyed it. It twanged some very interesting chords in me. Were these poems written with this theme of memory recollection in mind? Or did the theme of the collection arise during or after the process? Did you have this collection of poems and and thought to yourself, oh, look, I seem to have done a, a collection that's linked by memory and recollection. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the title came last. The the title was actually a bit of a difficult one. I went through about a million options. But yes, I didn't study ancient Greek at school either. And Anamnesis is quite a risky title in certain ways. It's potentially quite wanky. But I think it's a beautiful word. I'm going to be explaining what it means for the rest of my life, but that's okay with me. It's also kind of hard to pronounce. But yes, as you say, it means memories of a past life. And it's one of those words that's a gift because you're like, oh, good. I was hoping there might be a word for this thing that's quite hard to sum up. And it's a pretty unique word. I mean, you know, it hits the spot exactly. Well, I think memory has just always been my main area of interest as subject matter. I did a master's degree in philosophy, which is where I found this word because it's from philosophy. The area that I was looking at was the ways in which we attempt or have attempted to store the ephemeral the way that we make art, we take photographs, we put bird skeletons in bell jars, we pin butterflies to paper, we have libraries, we have data centers, we have papyrus, we have cuneiform tablets, the oral tradition even, they don't have to be tangible, but all of these different ways in which humans have tried to store 
memory and all of the ways in which they are essentially, ultimately ineffective and will all also atrophy. Ineffective when compared to human emotion, human sensation, do you mean, or ineffective in what sense? Well, libraries burn down, paintings are susceptible to rot and are affected by you know, the natural environment, even data rots. There's a thing called data rot. So like even what we see to be permanent is impermanent. I think I'm interested in sentience, in impermanence, and in memory. Memory as a creative pursuit as well, in the way in which we use our memories to tell stories, to tell the story of ourselves in order to understand one another and to understand our own experiences. It's just the subject I always come back to. Memory is one of the richest raw materials in, in literature, and uh, you've mined it very well here. But so back to the question, so you, you developed this fascination with memory, these modes of transmission, and did that then ignite a series of poems, or, or was it more subconscious, and, and these poems were coming out instinctively from this fascination with memory? It's kind of both. So I've been a poet now for 10 years. And so in a way, everything has been leading up to this point, like a first collection is quite an important step in a poet's life. But at a certain point, I noticed that this was the theme I kept returning to. And when my publishers asked me if I had a book in me, which was five years ago now, and I had to start thinking, what might my book be? It was memory was always going to be the main theme. And so this book has kind of taken me 10 years. It's kind of taken me five and it's also kind of taken me one, because last year we did the kind of signing of the contract and going, right, you've got one year to get it done now. So that was when the actual really hard work of making the book happen started, was a year ago. But a year ago, presumably, you, you had some of the poems already, or did you write everything in a year? I had quite a few of them, but I did write, I'd say, about half of the book in the last year. I think I had oh. to, because... As you get older, you get better. And so a lot of what I had from my early 20s just wasn't up to my standards anymore. That's another part about why it ended up taking me five years was because when they first asked me, do you want to do a full collection? I was 22. I was like, yeah, I can write a book. No bother. I'll get it to you in what, like two months. But then the growing up process happened during the course of that time, you know, and I got better. But what that meant was also that my standards got much higher. So it became actually much harder to write. And of it course. became a more daunting prospect to put all these things down on paper. Could you read a poem or a passage of a poem from your first collection and give us a brief commentary on it? Of course. So I thought I could read you the opening poem of the book. There are many things I was unsure of with this book and still am and probably always will be. But one thing I always knew was that this poem would be the opening poem of the book because it's the mission statement in a way. It's called Taking a Thought for a Walk. And it's inspired by Paul Clay, the painter. He was a teacher at the Bauhaus School in Germany. He was a very philosophical artist. Because he was a teacher as well, he'd really figured out what he thought about creativity. And there's lots of good quotes from him one of them, one of the most famous ones, is that drawing is taking a dot for a walk. Mm -hmm. And I love that idea. I also draw as part of what I do. I designed the cover, for example. So I thought that maybe writing poetry could be like taking a thought for a walk. 
Oh, wow. What a great idea. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, you do. You set out unenlightened. You're not wise poet here to share wisdom. It's more like you go on this journey in the process of writing a poem and you find something out yourself. And the starting point of this poem was that when I was at art school, I was told by one of the art history lecturers, or I remember anyway, that Paul Clay described his studio as being like a garden, which means that he would go into the studio in the morning, he would have several paintings on the go at any one time, and he would go in and he would tend to them all at the same time, see what they each needed that day. So they would all kind of grow together. Obviously, that's a great image, and I lodged that in my brain. I'd gone, one day, that'll be a poem. And when it came time to write that poem, I was doing research, and I couldn't find any evidence of this anywhere. Oh, that's so frustrating. Yes. It doesn't mean it's not necessarily true or untrue, but part of me wonders or worries that I made it up. So anyway, that is what this poem ended up being about, about memories, unreliability, and its creativity. So taking a thought for a walk. In art school, I was told that Paul Clay described his studio as being like a garden. At least, this is something that I recall. When I was four, I watched the tattered bath mat reclining, like a gutted glove puppet on the cork floor, and thought to myself, I will remember this. Somehow, I still do. I read somewhere that we walk through life backwards. Words are not necessarily true just because they sound good. Nevertheless, I believe in the poetry of that, like I believe in a painting's horizon. I have watched my home receding through the slow rear-view mirror of a car. I know how distance causes scenes to coalesce and flatten, yet some instants glint. Distinct as street lamps, don't they? So for poetry's sake, let's say that it is true, that every morning, after breakfast, Clay would visit his studio to see, in the subtle tilting of a new light, what each piece needed to grow. Abstract art is meaningless as music. For Clay, colour was mystical, and over time his once depictive paintings disassembled themselves, fragmenting cadmium yellow and cobalt blue into a peculiar Eden. Wow, thank you very much. You're welcome. And so you mentioned that it is the mission statement. Was it the first poem that you wrote, or did it emerge as the mission statement later on in time? It emerged. It's one of those poems where you write it and you, I don't know, I wrote it. And when it was done, I went, oh, that's what I've been trying to say in all these other poems for a really long time. And I think I just said it the best. I'm curious about the form of this poem that you've just read. And did you follow certain poetic rules, whatever those might be? Or is this more of a freestyle? Should readers or should I be looking out for certain structural elements uh, that I might not be familiar with? No. <laughs> Short answer, no. <laughs> I never studied writing myself. I've never studied writing in any capacity. I came to poetry via music, its musicality, the sound of language, also via live performance, storytelling, 
using pauses, punchlines, that kind of thing. And then also aesthetically, the way it looks on the page. I think I have used a few forms in the book. I believe there's a poem called Clink, which is a contrapuntal, which is basically two poems that can be read separately or together. And, and then there's some very creative ones in there. The, the one, uh, the, the view from the train, where you, you show a, a landscape of a murder of crows. But then there's one, for example, You Burn Me, which felt very classical uh, in, in terms of the content. And it's structured in cantos, which to me evoked Ezra Pound or T.S. Eliot or something like that. So there was something very classical there. How do you write in these different styles? What's the, the process of getting into the headspace? Yeah, You Burn Me is definitely my most like grown-up, clever poem. That was a product of my master's degree. I was basically exploring philosophical subject matter, but in a kind of poetic way. I was using the creativity of thought and the use of language that poetry affords to explore these quite liminal concepts, you know? And yeah, that was a piece I wrote for my master's, and it was an essay, but then I realized it was actually a poem. There's a, an American poet called Anne Carson. She's one of my favorites, and she sort of pioneered the poetry essay. I was inspired by her for sure. Another basic question, but why is there a section one and a section two in your collection? What's the difference? Well, I mean, with all of this, I'm just playing around. With the trying different forms as well, again, this is a first collection. So this is me sort of figuring out- Experimenting. And experimenting, exactly. And I was really seeking, especially in the last year, because of my lack of knowledge, really, when it comes to form and to rules and even rules in order to break them, I, I don't know about a lot of them. And, you know, page poetry is serious, academic poetry, and it's a bit more vulnerable feeling. So I was just really seeking. I was getting in contact with my elders and betters and asking for advice. And um, one of the parts of making a poetry collection, I suppose quite similar to making a, an album of music, is figuring out what order they should go in. Mm -hmm. Finding the journey and I had several poets recommend dividing the poems up into sections. And then potentially you can get rid of the sections and just let it be as is. So at first I had, I think, three sections. But then I realized I didn't need three. And the two sections, I kept them in because it being a book about memory, of course, childhood plays a role. It is that peculiar Eden I mentioned, I suppose, at the end of taking a thought for a walk. And I have this sort of split I noticed in my poems. Some of them are quite funny, fun, sensual, thinking about play and performance. And then also some of them are pretty existential and a bit sort of numinous and sad. So I saw this natural break in between that I ended up almost seeing as a bit like the fall. It's sort of leaving childhood behind. And so I see the two sections as being that kind of split of like, leaving childhood behind. I'd love to hear about how Scotland, which is where you're from, influences your writing or inspires it, because I think you're named after the Isle. I am indeed. You mm -hmm. evoke Edinburgh in some of your poems. And so I'm wondering, uh, does your homeland uh, play a part in your writing? For sure. I mean, I, I evoke Iona in one of the poems. The poem Thin Place is about the Isle of Iona because I spent some time living there in 2019. What was that like? 
Pulse. Yeah, I mean, it really is like living at the edge of the world. It's incredibly beautiful. Thin place means that it's a place where the skin between this world and the other world, the world of fairies, spirits, is thinner. Mm-hmm. And you can see why Iona is a holy isle and why before it was a holy isle, it was a pagan holy isle, because it does just have this sort of magical quality. It really oh, wow. does. It's where all of the ancient kings of Scotland are buried. Ah, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So there is a sense that you are, quote unquote, a Scottish poet. Besides evoking these locations, is there anything else that you think attaches you to Scotland in your writing? Language, I'd say. I mean, I don't write in Scots. So Scotland has three languages. There's English, there's Gaelic, and there's Scots. Scots is often mistaken for a dialect of English, but it's not. It's its own language. And um, there's been a sort of renaissance of writing in Scots in the last 40, 50 years in Scotland. It used to be quite looked down on as not, you know, to the standards of poetry. But these days, there's a lot of people writing in Scots, which is really cool. I don't write in Scots because I feel like that's not my mother tongue. You know, that's not my heart, my heart language. But the vocabulary of Scots turns up in my speech all the time, you know. You'll just be saying something that's in English and then a word in Scots will come up and that's the most correct word to use in that moment. Mm -hmm. So it's not a Scots poem, but it involves Scots vocabulary. For example, my poem, Plaything, about those alien egg toys that had had a moment in the 2000s. I say hawking, because hawking to hank in Scots is to scoop out and just hawk is the best word for it, (laughs) you know? Wow. So in language, for sure. I don't write in Scots, but sometimes I use Scots. Coming back to this, you just mentioned a poem that, again, I think contrasts very nicely with some of your other poems, this plaything poem. Here you're in a very modern, very contemporary element. There's another poem where you you mention, I'm wandering around Debenhams. (laughs) You have all these contemporary elements. How do they fit into the work overall? Well, I mean, that is my landscape, you know, talking about Scotland as my landscape. Yeah, sometimes I'm stood by a glen, but more often than not, I'm in Tesco. And you do have to write what you know. The romantic poets went and hung out in meadows and things, but I don't have as quick access to arable land all the time, you know? And I mean, I'm prone to existentialism. I love the antiquated. I love the uncanny. But also, sometimes you've got to go to Debenhams. So that might crop up as a background in a way, it brought out some, you know, Philip Larkin almost, you know, a sort of post-war British poetry. Is that a reference for you oh, at all? Yeah. Or? Oh, for sure. I love Philip Larkin. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. the whole time I was reading your collection, I was playing around with listening to different kinds of music. What would what would be the right mood music to listen to this? I don't think I solved the question. And so I was curious to know, what would you put on to create the right mood to listen to this? Or maybe the answer is none of the above. Well, it's a really interesting question. And it's one I've never thought of before. I collaborate with musicians a lot. That's one of my favorite things to do as a poet is to play around with what melody does to poetry. Because poetry, it's all about thinking. The rhythm of the language and the sound of words do a certain amount, but they can't ever do what a melody does. A melody skips right past thought and goes right into feeling without having to tell you how to feel. You just sense it on a another level. And so, you know, when you 
bring melody into poetry. It it gives it this other world to exist in. And I love collaborating with musicians, especially from a rhythm point of view. I love moving words around different rhythms and seeing what they can do and what space they have. So I know what I like to speak poetry to, but when you put words down on the page, they change. I can't influence you in the same way as I might be able to if I was reading them to you, you know? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it would be to read my poetry without saying it out loud because I know it inside out and back to front and I hear it in my own voice. So I'm not sure on that one. I mean, the stuff I like to read to is more sort of jazz. I like trip hop. Any specific bands that you you particularly like? I like mine. (laughs) You mean your band? Yes, I'm in a band called Acolyte. We do beat poetry. Okay. That's just to be plugged up. You're the lead vocalist or? Yeah, with poetry. So it's a band fronted by a poet. And are the melodies built, constructed around your poems? Yes and no. Ruri, who is the bassist and is the one who writes most of the music for the group, he and I have been working together for about six years now. So we know one another really well. It's really a cool place to be, to be a poet who has a major collaborator who's a musician. Because sometimes I'll come to him with words and sometimes he'll come to me with a melody. And sometimes Mm -hmm. we'll sort of build things together. But we're both influenced by musicians who play with poetry. So Tom Waits, for example, or Nick Cave is another big one. Of course, yeah, yeah. Patti Smith. That sort of merging of the theatrical, the musical, the poetic, yeah. So, you know, poetry can be seen by some as being a a more traditional form uh, of writing. And certainly in this age of AI, there are going to be challenges, perhaps, to this form. Uh, Where do you see the future of poetry, uh, given this technological landscape that we're in? Well, I am actually really interested in like the digital as a subject matter. Again, like philosophy background, interested in ethereal, numinous, liminal stuff. And what is more liminal than the internet? I mean, it's this augmented reality, this like other world that we all inhabit. And that was something I was looking at again during my master's where I was like, I don't think sometimes we pause and appreciate how liminal our existences have become in a way. You know, the internet does have tangible traces. There are data centers and things like that. But Ultimately, we're plugged into this kind of ulterior world, which is like layered over ours. So actually, just as a subject matter, I think it's really exciting. Certainly, like I understand people's concerns about AI, and it's a conversation I'm having more and more. A friend of mine the other day asked me a really good question, which was, I suppose it's whether you see art as a product or as a relationship. One thing that poetry has behind it is that it's a total relationship. I don't think that the computers will ever ever be able to write poetry in the way that humans can. I don't know if I can tell you why, though. Like, I've been asked Mm. before, can a computer be an artist? And I don't see why not. Mm. A lot of art these days, and I say this also as someone who uses Photoshop and things like that, the human is almost gone from it anyway. Even when there's a human working really hard on it, more and more digital stuff, less handmade stuff, And so the human is not necessarily as evident in a lot of animation or copywriting or artwork. Anyway, poetry, it's always got a human heart beating in the center of it. 
Great answer. Thank you. We're going to move to our quick question section where I ask you about your literary tastes and what recommendations you might have for our listeners. And because of your poetry, I guess the first question is, what's your favorite book of poetry that you would recommend to our listeners? Okay. So I I thought very hard about this and I couldn't just sum it up in one. So I thought I'd go with four of my favorite over the last year and I will say them very quickly. So Glass, Irony and God by Anne Carson, which is the poet that I mentioned who does poetry essays. She's a classicist. She's brilliant. If you're interested in what that means, poetry essays, that's the book to start with. Then from a, I suppose, pure poetry point of view, Shine Darling by Anna Frears is a collection that I've really enjoyed in the last year. Her poetry is like super sexy and sumptuous and yummy and uh, mm. makes me very jealous. <laughs> then I've also got Motherland, Fatherland, Homeland, Sexuals by Patricia Lockwood. She was uh, shortlisted for the Booker Prize last year, I believe, for oh, her wow. novel. But she's also a poet and her poems are entirely her own. I've never read anyone who writes poetry like her. She's very hmm. much like off the internet in her humor, but there's a real freedom in the way that she writes. As well as, so the last one, When I Grow Up, I Want to Be a List of Further Possibilities by Chen Chen. That's also one of those poetry books that is like a big, deep sigh of relief when you read it because you're like, oh God, poetry can be anything at all. Well, thank you very much for those four recommendations. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will appreciate them. Next question is, what's your favorite book that I probably have never heard of? Okay, so I had quite a lot of options, but the one I decided to go with is called Forests, The Shadow of Civilization by Robert Pogue Harrison. So it's basically a book on the role of forests in Western imagination. And there's this idea in philosophy that I'm really into called re-enchantment. So the idea that mastery has usurped mystery. And one of the best things we can do in the, the fighting of climate catastrophe is actually re-enchanting ourselves, falling back in love with the mystery of nature. And um, it's an academic book, but it's very readable. And it's one of those books where you're just reading it and you're just like, I want to live in this book. I'm so excited by it. And I love wow. I love forests. I always have done, like, I love fairy tales. I love folklore. I love Scottish folklore, especially. And a lot of it takes place in the forest. Like, the forest is the land of make-believe, you know? It's the opposition to order and state and city. It's queer. It's weird. But it made me realize, like, as much as I love the reality of forests, what I love more about forests is the vocabulary, for one, but also is the fact that they provide this sort of shadow land in which to imagine stuff. What's the best book that you've read in the last 12 months? So I think that would probably be The Dangers of Smoking in Bed by Mariana Enrique. I hope I've said her name right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the Argentinian writer. Indeed. Right. Yeah. It's a collection of short stories. It's sort of psychological horror. And I love horror as a subject. I think one day I'd like to grow up and become a horror writer. Did you read her, her latest book, uh, Our Share of Night? Not yet, but it's on my list. There were bits of it that I loved and bits of it that I really didn't love. So it was a sort of mitigated outcome for me, but the, the bits that I loved were amazing. That's why it being a short story collection was good as well. Cause like, you know, there's more variety and if you're not so into one story, you can switch to another. Yeah. But one thing I loved as well is that I've read so much horror by men. I've read pretty much all of Edgar Allan Poe. I've read 
a lot of the classic sort of old English horror writers from the turn of the century. And I love all of them, but I've actually not really read very much horror by female writers before, I realized. And there's a whole different set of things to tap into there. Like one of the Mm. stories in the book is about a woman who's haunted by the ghost of a dead fetus. Like, I don't think that would ever occur to a male writer. No, (laughs) a man would never go down there. What's a book that you found disappointing in the last 12 months? So I hate to say this because she's my favorite writer of all time, but ah, ooh. it's an Angela Carter book. She's my favorite writer of all time. So I have made it my mission to read everything she ever wrote. And which Angela Carter book did not pass muster here? Well, it's called The Passion of New Eve. And it's not bad. I'm just, I'm reading it right now and I'm struggling to finish it. And I think it's, first of all, it's Angela Carter at her most Angela Carter, like, You kind of want to rein her in a little bit. Like one of the reasons why I love reading her is because she writes like she's having a great time doing it. Yeah, And she's like on fire on the typewriter. But this book, it's just a bit like there's so much stuff and so little dialogue or really narrative. And the chapters are very long and it's not my favorite thing of hers I've read so far. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, She has, it's true, a very rich maximalist style yes, the prose yes. is amazing i love maximalism i love magical realism i love her prose i mean i write tentatively i'm nervous as a writer a lot of the time and i think that's why i aspire to her so much every sentence i would be chuffed to bits if i had one of her sentences in one of my poems you know and she's firing out a thousand of them yeah, yeah um, that's true <laughs> it's just so yeah so rich and opulent mm, um, yeah but so, okay, well noted on that on that disappointment. I mean, she can't hit a home run every time. Uh, no, so, totally. And I also yeah. think part of the issue might be that it's so of its time. It was written in the early 70s. It's very uh, obviously influenced by a lot of what was going on at the time, the death of the 60s, the women's lip movement. And sort of bizarre fiction yeah. things, like yeah. weird writers who didn't have plots or characters. Or exactly. Then, yeah, you know. exactly. Right. What single book would you take to a desert island? It would have to be either something that you would want to read over and over. And I love many books dearly, but I can't really think of many books that I would want to read many, many times. So then I thought, well, I like reading because I like finding out about stuff. So what about the Encyclopedia Britannica? Wow. Okay. Well, you're going to be busy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Busy on your desert island. And finally, last question of the day, what book changed your mind? Again, got many but the one I thought that I would offer today, and it's also, it's a Scottish book. It's called Where Are the Women by Sarah Sheridan, who's a Scottish writer. And it's basically a guide to an imagined Scotland. Ooh. And it came out not long after, you know, all the, the discussions in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter movement. And a lot of the way that people responded to that in Scotland was noticing how much of the architecture, the infrastructure, especially in Glasgow, is named after men who were slave owners or directly profited from that trade. I think that then led on to other people thinking just about what we decide to honor and who gets to be on the pedestals and who gets to be the street names and things like that. So she wrote this book, which is basically all an alternative guide to a Scotland in which all street names, all landmarks, all 
statues are after women from Scottish history. And then she tells each of those stories. Oh, wow. It changed my mind in that it made me really stop and think about how you don't even notice the fact that our built environment, our conquered environment, our natural environment is so just named after men and it's like women don't exist. Great. Well, Iona Lee, thank you very much for our interview today. Very much enjoyed it. Really enjoyed uh, your collection of poems, Anamnesis, your first collection, which I really recommend to everyone. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your recommendations. It was a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for having me. Here's a brief recap of the books that Iona mentioned during the episode. Her favorite poetry collections. She named four of them. The first was Glass, Irony, and God by Anne Carson, who is a classical poet who specializes in poetry essays. This was published in 1995. The second collection was Shine, Darling by Ella Frears, published in 2020, which was described as sexy and delicious. The third collection was Motherland, Fatherland, Homeland Sexuals by Patricia Lockwood, published in 2014, which is uh, very much connected to poetry around the internet in the way that she writes. The fourth collection was When I Grow Up, I Want to Be a List of Further Possibilities by Chen Chen, published in 2017, which told Iona that poetry could be anything at all. Iona's favorite book that I'd never heard of was Forests, The Shadow of Civilization by Robert Pogue Harrison, published in 1992, which captured the importance of forests in human imagination. Her favorite book of the last 12 months was The Dangers of Smoking in Bed by Mariana Enriquez, published in 2009 and translated, I think, in English in 2021. She's an Argentinian writer, and this is a collection of psychological horror short stories. Her most disappointing book in the last 12 months was The Passion of New Eve by Angela Carter, who's actually her favorite author, but this book was just too dense. The book that she would take to a desert island was The Encyclopedia Britannica. And finally, the book that changed her mind was Where Are the Women by Sarah Sheridan, which imagines an alternate Scotland which honors women in the street names, landmarks, and statues. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account at litwithcharles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.